Welcome to the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast hosted by CCNY. Behavioral health and human service organizations have to demonstrate outcomes. They have to run programs that make people better and prove it. So the mad scramble for data is well underway, but data is just numbers, outcomes are just results, and connecting the two is the work. So if it has to do with driving better results for clients using a data-driven approach, we cover it here on the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast. My guests today are Mohammed Hawk, a data analyst at CCNY, and David Monroe, the Director of Evaluation and Analytics here at CCNY. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us. All right, so today's topic is uh, highly relevant and highly important, and it is the social determinants of health. So David, first uh, question over to you. What are social determinants of health and, and, and why should we care? Well, there's a lot of literature about the social determinants of health, but when you break it down, it's something that people have intuitively understood, which is that a person's health and well-being are affected by things beyond what healthcare provides. They're affected by their access to clean water, their safe housing, transportation, uh, being uh, removed from racial discrimination, um, having education and job opportunities, being able to speak the language in the region that they're and read the language in the region that they live in, um, and having those skills to be able to communicate effectively. All of those things are the social determinants that impact health, and they tend to be larger than the healthcare determinants that impact health. There's a lot more going on. And so the healthcare, um, healthcare research is starting to realize that they need to figure out how best to impact those things if they want people to be healthier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like you said, it's intuitive, but now it's sort of getting formalized into our healthcare system or or the healthcare systems now acknowledging it as as an impact in a in a more formal way uh, yeah. than before. Okay, so you mentioned what the social determinants are. A few of them, like transportation, language barriers, some of that stuff. How does a health agency who's now adept at collecting health-driven information, like how do you collect this stuff? What is a measure of transportation look like? Well, there's a lot of different ways that health and human service organizations do this. And I'm adding human service organizations because they tend to be the ones who deliver these social determinants, not healthcare. So one of the nice things about being acknowledged by the healthcare industry is that the human service organizations have the opportunity to get paid for the work that they're done through the healthcare industry. And one of the ways that payment is looking to be taken care of and gathering data for it are through the use of uh, Z codes is one example. Z codes are part of the ICD-10 codes. They're um, an, a standard through which people collect and categorize data for claims essentially and other areas. And so the Z codes were added as a way to categorize different types of social determinants and submit those for payment, for example. So there's a variety of different human services that could uh, be paid for through that. 
And so, all right, so we've got these Z codes, right? And is it true or not that you can bill for a Z code today? Uh, it depends. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. my knowledge on this is um, fairly new. But uh, in some, with some of our clients, they can, and others, they can't. It depends on where they're located. Um, and in some cases, the, the government, uh, some state governments, have indicated that Z codes can be used, but I don't think the systems have figured out who's going to pay whom for how much. I don't think that's been really shaken out perfectly in, in everywhere. Okay, so... So again, we have this interesting scenario where we've got these Z codes where we can categorize social determinants, right, in our systems. So, but you can't bill for them yet. You can't get paid, which is often the driver of adoption, right? right. So um, maybe I'll, I'll lean over to Muhammad here for this one. What does the collection of Z codes, if you can't get paid for them, like, what's the benefit then? If you're collecting Z codes now, what does that mean for your data set so that you can apply it in a useful way? Well, in any scenario, not just Z code, data self building and future proofing comes to mind when I think of what is, what is the value of something to me right now. If something does not have a value to me at the current moment, I like to look into the future of what can it build? What kind of value can it bring to my organization? And if Z codes aren't implemented right now, well, it is maybe not obvious, but it is a trend that is going on that SDOH is making a impact within a lot of healthcare organizations. And SDOH data brings a lot of inf information and insight to these healthcare organizations. So within the future and within the near future, there needs to be standardization for these um, data sets. And if you take that leap, if you take that investment to gather those data, because there is a lot of data sets that are not, that are not readily collected by a lot of organization. And so if you take that initiative to collect that data set and build out your own data set, you'll be ready for when the future comes. Yeah. So, um, you know, often we talk about collecting a new piece of data um, against existing. This seems like a whole new bucket. Like, what what does it take to tactically implement collecting SDOH data, whether it's Z codes or some other way? Like, what what like where do you start? What's the what's the lift that an organization's looking at? I think there's two two main uh, strategies you can imply when collecting SDOH data. The first one, and this one is the most common thing, is to just use census data. Census data is robust and it's pretty much updated and kept upkept throughout the ages. If census goes down, then something big has gone down within the federal government that you're probably not going to be worried about SDOH upkeep at that point. So just um, to be just to be clear, you're not talking about census like a program census we use that term often you're talking about the united states census bureau data i'm census. talking about yeah. yes sorry sorry about no, the clarification okay. i'm talking yeah, yeah. about the united states census mm -hmm. bureau they have extensive data on a lot of social variables for 
pretty much throughout United States and using that as your base of your SDOH data is excellent. And when I said there's you- two, I actually... Oh, sorry. When I said two, there's actually three. And okay. uh, continue, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, where can we get... Where can you get that? Is that data readily available? What What is... That, mm-hmm. that data is fully open for public to use. Um, you can go to census.gov and you will have access to their API. All you need to do is apply for an API key, which takes about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And you have access to the full library of census without a dime. This is accessible to every single citizen and non-citizens throughout United States, um, giving you a very robust data set. But there are a lota lot of things within the SDOH data, uh, SDOH uh, topic that aren't really available through the census data. Things like transportation is one of them, and a lot of granular information, things that really go in depth with your local um, state, your county, that goes really deep down, deep dive into the cultures and various variables that you want to, as an organization, want to discover. And when that comes, you have to start with data collection within your organization. Um, So those are the two main ones, but there is a third option, which is open source data. Now, I'm a very big pusher of open source data. I love open source anything. In <laughs> fact, there's a lot of, lot of things that can be open sourced, uh, but hasn't really had the time to develop into it. One being SDOH data. And the reason I say that is because um, we've had an instance where we were looking at um, uh, diabetes data for diabetes and that mm-hmm. that becomes uh pretty much something we have to go into open source data to for us to collect and it's not something that's readily available but it is also something that's not upkept uh things like education data in the mm-hmm. open source field your latest data set is, that was uh that's available to you would probably be something around 2015 you won't get the latest data mm-hmm. and if the individual who created that data set is not decides, hey, I don't want to really upkeep this data set. I have other things to do. Then you're just going to be stuck with this old data. So can I interject real those quick, are the Tom? three main ways. Yes, absolutely. Take it away, David. One thing that um, one of our customers worked with was uh, NewYorkState.gov data. I think it's data.NewYorkState.gov. I can't remember the URL. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look it up. But the... It's where New York State provides a lot of their data sets and makes them open source and easy for analysts like Mohammed to pull those data and use them. Um, and the nice thing about it is they tell you a lot of information that Mohammed is talking about. How frequently is this updated? Who is the curator? And you can actually contact that person within the government. to see what's the latest about keeping this up to date. So that's a really great resource when you're looking at the SDOH items. Some of these things haven't really been measured strongly, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that could be used like racism. I think that that is something that could be measured better. Mm-hmm. Something as simple as like hate crime data. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's extremely... It's extremely rare to find, but it does 
exists and there are individuals who are passionate enough to provide that data set. And the, it's this open data that we were talking about, New York State's open data, it actually exists throughout United States. And um, it's at a different caliber for every single state. And it's not just state, they're citywide, individual city. I know mm -hmm. uh, Buffalo has an open data network, which provides which is one of my favorite uh, open data networks, actually, because we have something as granular as individual police reports, de-identified police reports, oh, wow. that really allow you to build a picture, an SDOH picture for Buffalo, because things like that don't really exist throughout USA. And a lot of uh, departments are hush-hush about their data. So access to data is very much um, hinges on who who's hush hush and who's willing to share and sure. be transparent slash open about it. So in the, you know, in, in what's going to end up being the long history of SDOH data, where are we? Are we in year one? Like how, you know, what percentage of, you know, data and access do we have today compared to where we're going to end up eventually? I mean, how early is this really? I feel I like we're in like the adolescence years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it feels like to me because uh, before I was an, yeah, before I was an analyst, I, I, I worked as a developer as well. And as a developer, I've, I had to, you know, call APIs for a lot of different uh, data sets, a lot of different services. And the services for those da uh, data sets and um, APIs are so much more robust and well-structured mm -hmm. than anything that's SDOH related. To me, when I work with SDO, try to find SDOH data within the landscape, within the internet, it requires so much more effort than it does for any other data set that to me, it feels like we're still in that infancy, adolescence age where there's a lot to build and there's a lot of open space for organizations to just grab at and be like, okay, we're going to specialize in this SDOH data set for all of USA or for this state in particular. And this could uh, provide a lot of, um, I feel like it could provide a lot of um, benefit to the state. Mm -hmm. But for them to get paid, again, as David was saying, the Z codes need to be applied and recognized right. throughout and if it isn't, then it will be hard for a lot of these organizations to get fundings. So it's it's, it's that feedback loop that exists. Right. Okay. So so that paints a nice picture about the technical aspects of the data. Let's talk about now, kind of bring it back down into the organizational level. So you have this picture of a geographic area in terms of Man, all that stuff that you talked about, crime statistics, um, you know, general health information, pollution sources, you've got all this stuff, right? Now, how does that become useful? How can the data engineers in your world make connections from one to the other? And what types of insights can an organization gain and how can they put them to use? So one of our customers asked us that question pretty directly. And what we worked on was looking at gathering data from a variety of census types to get a picture of their geography and 
look at and use statistics to find out how impactful were these different social determinants on their outcome that they were looking to solve. And through that work, we found that there were a couple that were very strong for their population in that location. Um, and so what we did was we created a dashboard. It was a hotspot of their geography and showed the population that they serve. They serve quite a few people um, and mapped them out by density and allow them to look at those factors that impact the population they're serving so that they could see um, if it was an educational issue like grad high school graduation might be really challenging in one area or um, poverty is a, is a big challenge in another area or um, um, housing and access to quality housing was a challenge in another area, you could see directly that those geographies where these things were occurring, especially when multiple number one, uh, multiple mm -hmm. concepts were occurring, um, that they had a higher risk to a negative outcome in their life. So what then is the translation for that agency? Okay, I see these factors, I see multiple, and I see them in an area like, how do I change my, I mean, what's an example of a program pivot or quality improvement cycle? Or, or what is, what's an example of a potential action that the agency could then react to that to deliver a, a better chance of a positive outcome? What they're working to do, and this is currently happening, is having their, those who coordinate care for the population have a a list of the people who are, are the highest risk of being impacted by these social factors that lead to this negative outcome they're trying to avoid and start working with these families and these um, children and youth to change the trajectory of their lives. So if you can help them with transportation, they are likely to get to the doctor and therefore be healthier. If you can help them connect with an organization that helps them with housing, they can live in a safer, healthier house that doesn't say have lead uh, poisoning issues in it and then therefore be healthier. So all of these factors are things that they're targeting uh, through specific programs to connect them to care and often connect them to other human service organizations to support the people that they're serving. So in, in this scenario, the social determinants data helps create a risk profile or helps identify based on profiles, clients who are at higher risk for negative outcome and you can direct either more or different service to that earlier. Is that a good uh, way to frame it? Incredible way to summarize it. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems like this is the key, it sort of unlocks the key to true early, to earlier intervention outside of just the doctor's office or the therapist's office or whatever it is. It's, hey, you're here for therapy, but I can identify these things. I know your potential risk factors. I can ask you how you're getting here to make sure you'll come back for appointment two. And if not, I can help you. And it seems like the system's ready to embrace that and say, yes, a therapist is no good if the client can't get to that session. 
Yeah, it turns out behavior change is really hard, and behavior change oftentimes mm -hmm. are the most powerful factors in helping people's lives. If I decide that it's so convenient to eat from McDonald's every day, I'm going to eat from, I'm going to order McDonald's every single day, I'm going to get sick. And changing my behavior is really hard. So you're trying to get someone who, if they have depression and diabetes, you're telling them to change their behavior, eat differently and exercise more, but they're depressed and doing anything is really hard. And those two concepts are swirled like a layer cake. You can't pull them apart. So you can connect that person to a nutritionist, to some, to some uh, counselors and start moving the needle on behavior change so that in a year or two or three, uh, their life gets better. But often you know, people are looking for that magic bullet. Like I want to feel better next month. And I don't blame mm. them. People Sometimes people are suffering when you have those sort of things. What they have to do is trust the system, engage in their care, and slowly uh, change the needle. Um, one philosopher said, "Don't in order to change your life, don't uh, aim high, just aim up. <laughs> Even a little bit. Yeah. I and, like uh, yeah, I, I think, I think that's, that really helps. So you, you mentioned dashboarding hotspots and like, I can picture that, right? It's a, it's some kind of heat map. Um, you know, you're looking at a map and it's visually telling you what's going on in, in certain areas. Um, let's throw it back to Muhammad from a technical dashboard visualization standpoint, like help our listeners sort of picture what they might be looking at. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are used to dashboards around things like productivity and discharge results. And we've seen some bar graphs and, and pie charts, but can you kind of try to paint a picture for us about what looking at SDOH data looks like beyond just, you know, a, a hotspot map, which, you know, that's a great first start, but I'm sure there's more, mm -hmm. there's more lenses with which to look at. Can you describe some of those for us? Yeah. So. Definitely, when you're looking at any kind of um, STOH data, it is very much useful to look look at it location-based. Um, America, most of America is broken up into zip codes, and a lot of the data and a lot of the issues are based around these zip codes because they treat zip codes as as like a group location. And when we do have a lot of these social determinants issues that are appearing, they congregate and concentrate within these zip codes. So viewing any kind of social determinants data, it's when it comes to viewing any kind of social determinant data, it just naturally falls under these zip codes, these area clusters that you have within any kind of neighborhood, any kind of um, state, city, county, whatever you have. And when you do have that, you it, it is often it often tends to go into any kind of uh, heat map because if you're looking at, let's say, crime rate, where in your city is the highest crime rate? Well, you want to see it within a gradient of color. And it's easy for us, you, 
humans to identify light means little and dark means mm -hmm. a lot <laughs> in layman's term. And um, one thing I've always uh, not really struggled, but like always like um, put front when I'm developing any kind of uh, dashboard and visualization is simplicity. The more data points you have on any map, the more complicated it gets. And uh, most folks don't spend more than, let's say, 10 to 15 seconds looking at a visualization. And if you have things hidden away, half of your story just gets thrown out the window. And in that case, it's always good for me to pinpoint when, especially when doing any kind of map, because maps inherently are complicated to begin with versus a bar chart or a pie chart. You want to focus in on a single um, point. So whether it be education rate, poverty rate, um, crime rate, um, pollution rate, whatever you have, air quality is another one. Um, whatever you have, you want to always choose one and focus in on that in your heat map, which will allow you to get your point across much more efficiently. So I, I, uh, I follow you 100% on simplicity and the more data points together, the more complicated it gets. Since we're talking about SDOH as a concept, and you mentioned mm -hmm. a few things, right? Like um, rates, like crime rate. Crime is made up of many components mm -hmm. that then becomes a, a rate. Are we at a place where we have any kind of SDOH indexes? Are there any, you know, ways that we are, you know, creating, here's your geography. And since I only want to give you one data point, I can give you like an SDOH score. Is that, are we at a place where that's happening or what are your thoughts on that? In fact, uh, I, I, I actually, surprisingly, I have a lot of information on this specific topic, especially the crime rate one, because, um, for, uh, for a certain, um, a uh, client of ours, I spent a lot of time trying to find crime rate for their particular geography. And what I've noticed and what I've learned is, and this is through me sifting through all of FBI's open data is crime rate does not exist. Crime rate is something that is created usually by the person who is creating the visualization. Mm -hmm. It is a standard that is, agreed upon throughout the world of data, but it is not accurate. This is very important because all FBI provides in terms of crime data are the points. So you have 10 um, rob breaking and entries, uh, 15 murders, and that's it. Now you as a data analyst have to go and find population data and um, which and your crime data and match it up uh, based on the time that these data have been updated and create a crime rate that is as accurate as you can possibly make it. Now this this in itself just means that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that SDOH field, specifically the crime rate field. And um, what to your second point, which was, is there an SDOH score 
Does that exist? And in fact, um, California, I'm not sure exactly where, had um, a university in California, a, a, a professor released an STOH map where they developed an STOH score for each neighborhood. And up in Buffalo State, uh, somebody saw that and decided to do the same thing for Buffalo. So this actually exists for Buffalo, and the professor's name is Wendy Mix. They have um, produced this SDOH factor using various variables, using Buffalo's open data, and it is absolutely gorgeous. It You have the different layers. I was talking about the simplicity. It's extremely simple to understand, you, and but it is also uh, extremely complex because it tells you the overall story in a glance, but you can go very deep within it because... It, it shows neighborhoods and it hotspots it based on this SDO8 score, which takes the overall um, uh, variables that they've determ they determined to be um, significant and build up an SDO8 score from that. They've applied probably weights to certain elements and, you know, it's some sort of factors i mean they're sought into this right it's not like some average oh, yeah. or some you know aggregate percentage that's easily attained somebody has to to study all of the elements and apply severity to all of them i mean is that the type of of work we're talking about to determine you know exactly. an index or score exactly exactly and that's that's the beauty of it and i feel like having this having this kind of work published and out for each individual state, each individual county, each individual city would be extremely, extremely helpful for lots of healthcare providers to use and to understand, um, look, you're from this uh, area where the S your SDOH score is low. Uh, we could uh, give you benefits. We can help you uh, based on these scores, and it will allow for greater healthcare um come come the future hopefully so how about in a predictive sense so if you have sdoh data that tells you that uh that clients who come see you are from a certain area which makes them more or less prone to certain outcomes or certain conditions can we then watch these SDOH type indexes and anticipate that client need in certain areas might grow or decrease? Or can we not use that in this way? What, what we've done is we've looked at certain factors and found that those factors based on a certain weight impact individuals risk. Mm -hmm but it has to be tied with other factors as well. Um, and it turns out that those other factors plus um, SDOH factors um, together give you a whole enough picture to be able to predict how likely they are to have a negative impact in their lives. Um, at times, there are these factors that we call protective factors that people who live in a neighborhood that is very poor, um, because they have a bunch of other factors that are harder to measure now, right now, um, they seem to do better. 
So things like a very loving family, even in the midst of chaos around you, uh, tends to help that person do better than those who don't have it, right? So these sort of factors are really powerful, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting. And it's a I think it's a fun time to be doing data analysts, to, doing analytics in this area. It's um, there's a lot to learn. Well, that's there's always somewhere where the data breaks down, right? You can look at a zip code, you can lump everybody together, you can have indexes and scores and rates and all of that, but from one house to the next, what's happening on the inside that's immeasurable could be making all the difference, right? right. And that's where our job stops and and, uh, and the, human, the human side um, takes over and we might never be able to track that. I'd like to give that a is... specific example though of where mm -hmm. this worked and it was very creative. So, uh, this organization was working in a whole state, and one of the things that they found is that a certain medication uh, can, when coupled with a, uh, a person living, having a lot of, just getting overheated, could be fatal. And it was in a southern state, and what they found is that some people uh, needed air conditioners. Air conditioners don't cost that much money compared to the cost of care. So getting air conditioners in place for these folks right away so that they can, so that their internal core temperature goes down, keeps them mm -hmm. alive and helps deal with uh, these other factors. So that it's that type of thinking and that type of creativity mm -hmm. that's required. It's not just data. It's also being creative and, and taking some risk. They, some people took some risk on that one and it paid off. So now that we're tying that thought process to the healthcare system, are we going to see a future where an insurance company says, I'll cover your air conditioner because then I won't have to cover your hospital bill? That's one thing that I'm, I, I personally, as an analyst, I'm kind of scared of is the insurance side of everything. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you're, your SDOH score is low, so your insurance rate is going to go up. Mm. Your SDO, people can start using it maliciously. And I, I think similar to something like HIPAA, I feel like it should, SDOH factors should be added as protected, something that's protected of an individual. That way, individuals aren't judged for their SDOH factors. But data such as your location and a lot of these uh, SDOH data is it, it's very much a public thing. And and a lot of insurance company they have the assets to just build build out those information and without even asking for that data they can know about your SDOH factors just through you signing up for their clause. Well, sure. Like I just think about myself and my car insurance. As soon as I give my zip code to get a quote. They're immediately checking the accident rates for my area and helping exactly. determine my rate. And that has everything to do with the neighborhood that I'm, that I'm living in. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm really, I'm really interested in that though. Can you, can you flush that out a little bit more? Where, like, where are, I know this is just sort of opinion at this point, but like, where do you think those lines are and where, where, sh where do you think they should be drawn in terms of who gets to, 
who gets the SDOH factors so they can deliver value against them, and who shouldn't have them so that they can't be malicious with them? I feel like remove like the ultimate goal is to remove SDOH factors, right? That's like the ultimate utopian goal of any kind of healthcare system, any kind of system in general. Because if racism doesn't exist, if poverty doesn't exist, well, th those are not variables that you need to worry about. And uh, but the harsh reality is that's that's like anywhere. This is not just uh, United States. I'm from Canada, and this ha this is happening in Canada as well. Um, insurance companies or any kind of organization that you want to work with have access to this and is currently using this data to you know uh, file your rates and it's it, now this is a you know we, we got to get that disclaimer this is a personal opinion i don't think that should be the case since a lot of things that are surrounding you are out of your control an individual like i don't control the accident rate of my street so why am i being punished for other people's mm -hmm. um behaviors right Mm -hmm. similar to what you just said. And um, similarly, I did not decide to put up a chemical power plant near my house. Mm -hmm. So why am I being charged for health insurance on health insurance premium? Because I live in a place where there's a factory that could probably cause me cancer down the line. Right. I, yeah. It's, I think there's, like there's a couple it's, ways to look at it. You can, you can, any, Anyone who's doing this work can use data for good or for greed. Yes. Um, and I think because we're not-for-profit, I think one of the things that we share the value is we're trying to improve the lives of others. And, and in a way, what we're trying to do is improve the lives of those who help others and really focus in that area. So the clients that we work with, we often train them on the limitations of what we provide the value that they have, and we are very ethical in our process to make sure that it can be used in a meaningful and equitable and just way. And I think, I think many of our clients want that, uh, and they want that trust. They want that trust that we are going to look at that a, in our process. And the nice thing about it is that that's something that we do. As you can tell, Mohammed's very passionate about it because, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we've trained, we've gained mm -hmm. training on equitable data practices so that we can make sure Absolutely. that we're not accidentally harming someone. It's important. So you have to it's, be careful. Mm -hmm. You have to be careful. And it's, it's the other thing is like SDOH data. If when I said a few minutes back, it's in its adolescence. I was talking about in the not-for-profit section sector. It is extremely, extremely sophisticated in for-profit sectors, uh, especially on giant corporations like Google. You know how good their SDOH data is? They know every minute detail about that just because they have the uh, infrastructure for that, right? Or be it Google, Facebook, whatever, all the big companies, all the big tech companies, mm -hmm. they have data comparable to ah, well I, I there's nothing to compare it to because they're at the top of the game sure but um because you have this lag a lot of for-profit can utilize sdoh for their own personal gains before um any kind of not not-for-profit organization can come up to speed and utilize the same technology 
for the good side of things. And now I'm not saying uh, a lot of these companies are evil, greedy, and only using it for bad. No, they could be using it for neutral mm-hmm. things, right? Sure. Um, advertisement, what have you, sure. uh, which doesn't really affect much people but we don't know we don't know uh, this is all yeah. personal opinion sure. uh, <laughs> don't write a thesis paper on it <laughs> uh, it's not peer-reviewed um sure and so yeah. i want to i want to close by asking each of you um the same question and if you the question's this if you are a mental health uh, agency or um, social services agency, you know, anything outside of the traditional healthcare, you know, primary care hospital practices, if you're in this sort of um, social care delivery, and you're doing zero today with social determinants of health, what's the first piece of advice that you would give to that agency to take that first step towards making SDOH an informative part of your practices? What should that agency do first and second or third? But what are the, what are the drivers that, uh, how how does that agency raise their hand? This is a difficult topic, but for me, I'm fairly new, but I think the thing that really drove me into the lane of SDOH when I was starting to learn analytics in general was awareness of SDOH. I think if an organization mm. is at zero, level zero, they need to sit down and have a talk and discussion within their organization about SDOH, bring in somebody external that has worked with SDOH data and you know change your hiring practices, bring in people who have these uh, experiences that will allow your organization to adapt to SDOH data more fluently, but not rejected, if that makes sense. Because a lot of these time, a, a, a lot of these cases, new ideas often get rejected because they're being forced down mm-hmm. and f- spoon fed to individuals. You have to kind of base your culture around it. And I, and I feel as though that's how I felt joining CCNY. That's the kind of culture that has been built here. And I feel right at home working with SDOH. So the first step for for you isn't even mathematical. It's education. Study it, learn yes. it, get to familiarize yourself with it, um, and only then will you know, you know how to how to take that second step forward. I like that, Dave. Same question to you. First step for an agency that wants to bring SDOH into their practice. I would uh, focus on value. So, one of the things that these changes bring about are opportunities payment opportunities, potentially, and ways to use data to tell a story about populations that may be underserved. So if you look at what you currently do in the area of social determinants, and we're using that word very broadly, it means a whole lot of different things. Um, If you look at that and find that we have this program that impacts one portion of that. Let's say it's employment. Start looking at telling a story about how that could potentially impact health. You don't have to prove it. You're not a scientist. Nonprofits aren't scientists and they're not funded like scientists. So they can't prove it. But if they can tell a story that there's a relationship between 
us helping these folks get employment and you being able to know that you now have to pay less for their health care, then you can use that story to say, I provide a lot of value to your population. Let's talk about and and think of some strategic partnerships. Think of uh, some payment opportunities. And there's a lot of not-for-profits that are starting to do that and use that tactic as a way to have conversations with foundations, with um, uh, managed care entities, and, and that sort of thing. Wonderful. Well, that is uh, all the time that we have for today. I want to um, thank my guests, Mohammed Hawk and David Monroe. Um, thank you both for being here. Very informative. And um, I think that uh, I, I sense a follow-up to this in the future. This is definitely a topic, like you said, with a lot of layers. And so um, stay tuned for more uh, data analytics and, and quality discussion on the Data Doesn't Equal Outcomes podcast from CCNY. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.